As Jacob mentioned, we are going to do something that we do every year. It's, it's, our, it's our tradition. It's our annual rhythm. Um, the second week of January, we set aside a week or five days uh, to, to pray, to fast, and consecrate ourselves uh, for the year as a church family. And as Jacob alluded to, we're doing it as a part of a, a larger family of churches that we're a part of called Every Nation. Um, some of you heard me say this many times. Others of you may have no idea what Every Nation is. This is the, the larger family of churches that we're a part of. Every nation has churches in something like 80 plus different nations around the world. Um, I guess you could say it's our denomination or like our denomination, but it's just a, it's a group of churches that we are connected with in mission and in relationship. Um, and it's fantastic. So as a part of this church family, this is something that we're going to be a part of. And um, the theme this year is set apart, um, which is another way of saying um, holy. God is called us to be a people, his people, his kids, who are set apart, who are special, who are holy, like he is holy. And that's a mega theme in scripture, and it's something that we're going to be focusing on. It's going to be our theme as we begin the year. It's going to be our theme as we pray and fast this week. And then again, as Jacob said, it will be our teaching series for the next six weeks beginning this morning. If you've never fasted as a Christian, um, fasting is actually something that people have been doing, all sorts of people of different faiths, religions, and backgrounds, like since the beginning of time. Um, it's actually, a, it's a great thing. It's very beneficial. It's healthy. And there's a lot of ways that you can do it. You can, um, you can fast food. That's obviously the, the traditional way of fasting. But you can also fast uh, like screen time. You can fast um, different forms of social media. You can... Fasting is something that you do, um, you deny yourself one thing in order to, to focus on something else. So we're going to fast together this week as a church family um, so that we can sort of take all of that hunger that would normally compel us to like eat and utilize some of that energy, even some of that emotion, because eating is a very emotional thing, um, to seek Jesus, um, and to listen to him, to draw near to him, meet with him in, in, some, in a very special way. Um, God is not impressed by our religious performance. Fasting isn't something that we do to somehow convince God that like, we're worth his time and attention. That's not it at all. Fasting is a tool. It's something that we do so that we um, are able to seek God in prayer. And it's, it's very practical. We're literally setting aside one thing in order to focus on God. Um, I want to invite you and challenge you to be a part of this. Um, this is not like a mandatory thing. We're not going to go around and like insist that everyone is a part of this. Um, but I can't encourage you enough. If you've never done something like this, go for it. Try it. And, and set a Set an achievable goal for yourself. Like for me, someone asked me this morning at the pre-service meeting what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a smoothie fast for five days. So just fruit and veg, just smoothies for five days. Um, and during those times when I'd normally be eating and I'm feeling the hunger pains, I'm going to get out my devotional guide and I'm going to spend some time just praying, journaling, reading God's word, um, as a church family, we're going to meet at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Monday through Friday this week, right here in this building. We'll actually do it upstairs. Um, I'd invite you to be a part of that as well. Uh, it might be, a, like, logistically a real stretch, like a radical challenge to actually show up here at 6 a.m. every morning. It could, like, mess with your schedule. I say go for it. Like, set the bar as high as you can. God will meet you there. God loves to meet with his kids. Um, but be a part of it somehow. We ordered 50 of these. That's probably just enough for everyone in the room. Please take one home with you. Even if you're unsure if this is something that you want to do or can do this week, just take one. Use it as the devotional. Be a part of this, this family. Um, we don't need 2024 fasting guides lying around halfway through the year. So please take one with you before you leave. 
Um, and if you're joining us online, we'll have some uh, PDF versions on our website available as well. I think that's it. Are there any questions about praying, fasting, being a part of this this week? Thank you, Raya. Raya asked, what time is our worship night on Friday? Thank you so much. Great question. So we'll actually finish the week with a time of worship and communion at 7 p.m. Friday night. So as we're doing this, some of you will probably be here every morning at 6 a.m. or every evening at 6 p.m. And we'll, we'll see each other. We'll kind of connect that way. We'll pray and sort of do this together. As others of you won't be able to do that. Um, I would encourage you to like find a partner, someone that you can like schedule a daily phone call with or an online thing or maybe meet someplace in your area. Um, it would be amazing if we could all gather um, on Friday. Even if you've not been fasting all week, this isn't the kind of thing where it's like, well, if you haven't been fasting, we're all going to find out and then we'll shame you and you'll feel awkward participating in the Friday night. And that's, that's, not, that's not it at all. We want everyone to engage in this however you're, you're able. Any more questions? Okay. We're going to begin our teaching series entitled Set Apart this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The NIV translation says, verse 9, this way. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Lord, would you help us? This morning, as we consider these words, your word, would you be our teacher? Would you give us hearts and minds that are, are soft and ready to, to listen to you? And I pray that you would help me, Lord, as I'm, I do my best uh, to teach. Won't you meet with us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's... Um, Let's warm up a little bit. I loved Adam's message last week. Um, I was listening to the podcast. He's great at engaging people. It's fun. Um, here's a question for you. How do you feel? Now, let's start with this. What do you think about when you hear the word holiness? How do you feel? At the topic of holiness. Um, when I mentioned a minute ago, we're going to talk about holiness. Six weeks focusing on the holiness of God. How do you feel about that? The fullness of God. Mm -hmm. How does it make you feel? It's a big word. It's a heavy word. A mysterious word. An ominous Word. I feel like it's a word that needs to be said, like with the voice of Vincent Price. Holiness. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> That's weird. Holiness. It's a big word. 
God is holy. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. This morning, we're going to begin our series by simply talking about uh, God as holy. Or part one, God is holy. And I want to break into three parts. I don't always do this. In fact, I rarely do this. Um, but in my planning the last couple of weeks, I, f- I found it helpful to sort of break this into three categories. If we can put that slide up on the screen, please. Oh, did we, did we, did we find that? Okay, I'll just say it while you find it. Sorry, I should have let you know. Oh, thank you. God is holy. That's the title. We're going to break into three parts. Number one, holy how? How exactly? Number two, holy theological factoids, Batman. You remember that show? And number three, holy then what? So holy how? Like how exactly is God holy? What do we mean by holy? What does holiness even mean? Number two, holy theological factoids. Um, I'll unpack that in a minute. Um, And then holy then what? Or holy so what? What do we do with this information? Holy how? How is God holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? Uh, Let's start with the word holy as it appears in uh, well, Psalm 190 or Psalm 96, as we just read from, um, it's the Hebrew word kadesh or kadosh, depending upon the grammatical context. Kadosh is usually the Hebrew word that refers to something or someone being uh, set apart. That's the title, set apart. Someone or something that's uncommon incomparable, beyond comparison, or utterly unique. Awesome. That's what the word means. Um, And it doesn't just refer to God. In fact, the very first time that word that we translate as holy shows up in the Bible, it's in Exodus chapter 3. You know what's referred to as holy? Dirt. It's the ground that Moses is standing on. That's the first time kadosh appears in the Bible. It's actually referring to ground, holy ground. The idea is that there's something about that place, that moment, that space that's utterly unique. It's special. It's uncommon. It's incomparable. It's set apart. It's holy. God is holy. God is holy because there is truly no one like him in all of creation, which is why um, one of the constant refrains that shows up in scripture, specifically the Old Testament, are the words, who is like our God? Who is like this God? For example, Exodus Chapter 15, verse 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? Or Psalm 77, verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Psalm 89, verse 6, For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? And finally, my favorite, Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There is no one like our God. God is holy. That's what the word means. When we talk about God, we're talking about this being that is utterly unlike anyone or anything else in all of the created universe. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. Specifically, 
because that's just like in the most abstract sense, in, in the broadest, most general terms, God is holy. But specifically, God is holy in his mercy and love. No one does mercy like our God. No one does mercy like the Lord. There's like no comparing him. God is holy in his faithfulness and ability to save his people. God is holy. God is incomparable in his marvelous works among the peoples. God is holy in his awesome power. He is to be feared above all gods because all the other so-called so-called gods of the people are merely creations of the people, whereas the Lord is the creator who made the heavens and the earth. God is holy in his beauty. By the way, this is all coming from Psalm 96. God is holy in his beauty. He inspires wonder, awe, worship, and song like no one or no thing in heaven or on earth. There is no one like the Lord. God is holy. How do you feel about holiness? Stay with me, guys. I'm looking at you. Some of you are like, like what, how is this helping me? Mm. I, I'm, I'm with you. Hang in there. <clears throat> holy theological factoids. Here's a fun thing. Google Robin's holy sayings. Do you guys remember the old school Batman series? And his sidekick Robin, we all know Batman, right? And Robin would always, every episode, he would say, holy, and some like random phrase, Batman. And this was way, way before like Google days when you could just like, anyone could like, find any information whatsoever. These writers were brilliant. Some of the things that they said or made Robin say were like super, super ingenious. Holy theological factoids. Um, is this idea, what I'm talking about right now, the holiness of God, is it actually important? Or is it like, like dates that we all forgot in history class? You know, it's like it kind of important, like it's, you know, dates actually matter if we're to understand the chronology and like the meaning of history. But like, let's face it, most of us don't actually remember that stuff. Or is understanding the holiness of God actually really, really important? Like this, this will affect the way I, I, I understand God and, and do life. Like, is it possible that these are more than just theological factoids, but this is, if we can grasp or begin to understand the holiness of God, could it be that this is arguably one of the most important things that we could say or think about when it comes to the nature of God? Why do we need to understand this? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite 20th century American writers. This, this was an uneducated man um, who I think knew God. If you've never read any A.W. Tozer, do yourself a favor. Get The Pursuit of God, and you can find a free copy of The Knowledge of the Holy. He wrote it in like the 1960s. This is something that he says in his book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That's a mouthful. I think his argument is it does matter. These are more than just random, maybe slightly interesting theological factoids for the biblically curious. Um, our understanding of who 
God is affects everything about, we, about the way we view and do life. Not just religion, like our lives. <clears throat> our view of God shapes the way we fundamentally see and live in our world. And when we begin to forget that God is holy, utterly incomparable, wonderfully unique in all of creation, we tend to slowly but surely recreate God in our own likeness, or at least who we would like to think we are. Because the God of our imagination um, tends to be our default in the way we understand God. When we try relating, or when we create, when we do this, we do what um, the fancy term for it is we anthropomorphize God. Have you ever heard that word? So there's a mouthful if there ever was one. We anthropomorphize God. We know anthro, right? Anthropology, the study of human, human culture, human whatever it might be. When we begin to recreate God in our own minds to align with our sort of personal version of who we would like God to be, which is usually like an idealized version of ourselves, we're recreating God from like our human perspective. So God is the creator. He creates us. When we anthropomorphize God, we begin to recreate God. God according to our own imagination of who he is. And it's usually something like, um, it could be maybe your dad that you love or hate. God could be the antithesis of the thing that you hate, or it could be the idealized version of the thing that you wish you were. But it's, it's something that you've created in your own mind. When we create... When we do this, we create mental caricatures of God based upon our personal fears, painful experiences, or even outright rebellion. And when we try relating to the God of our own creation, the God who's like fill in the blank, when we do this, we're let down again and again because the God of our imagination is really just a cheap imitation version of who God really is. This is why this matters. I want to know God. I want to experience God's, um, his grace, his healing. I wasn't always a Christian. I don't know your story, but I imagine if I was to survey the room, we weren't all, we weren't all like, um, we've all had different points in our lives where we thought, I want to stop living life like my way and, and setting like my own standards and determining my own values. And, and I want to surrender my life to my creator. I want to follow God. Only not the God of my imagination. Like God, God. Like capital G, God. Like God who created the world, who knows me intricately, who knows what I need more than I know myself. Like if that God actually exists, and if he really cares about my existence and desires to like, heal me and save me and restore me and, and love me and welcome me into his family, like sign me up. That's the God that I really want to relate to. Not just the God of your opinion or your opinion or my opinion, the idealized version of the God who I've created in my own mind. I have no interest in that. And maybe some people do. But I think deep down, what we all really desire is to experience God. I'm not trying to relate to some figment of my imagination. Where's the freedom in that? When we begin to forget that God is utterly unlike anything else in creation. When we forget that and we start to recreate God in the likeness 
of creation, then, then we begin to start relating to a God who's not actually there. And then we get frustrated because this God that I've created isn't fulfilling my needs and he's not healing me the way that I thought he would or should. And, and what's, what's, what's wrong? Well, what's wrong, and this isn't to make anyone like feel bad, like how dare you do, you know, think poorly about God. It's just that I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in so many people. We begin to create a God and relate to a God who's not actually God, and then we wonder why he's not doing the God things that I thought he was supposed to do. And so the good news is that actually God is fully aware of this human phenomenon and invites us to surrender. It says, come and follow me, know me, become a true worshiper of God. God wants to set us free from relating to the God of our imagination, the idealized version of ourselves, and to actually know the God who can save, who's better than the worst and best caricatures of the God that I've created in my own mind. And that actually is good news. It's kind of a, um, <laughs> it's a bit challenging, because what I'm saying is actually the way we imagine God is probably always a little bit less than perfect. Even the most biblically astute among us, it's a very humbling notion. <clears throat> when we reduce God down to a caricature of himself, we end up with a God with weird and over-exaggerated features. Holiness then becomes code word for, and I'll give you some examples. See if this offends anyone or everyone. Holiness then becomes code word for a God who can only be found in cold, echoey European cathedrals. He's far, far off because he's too holy to get close to. Or holiness becomes code word for a God who can only be found in quote-unquote spiritual environments however you might personally define that at any given moment. Or a God who will melt your face off if you dare make eye contact or think a bad thought or say the wrong thing or fail to love your neighbor well lately. Or a God, here we go, who is utterly obsessed with your sexuality the way our culture is. That's a God who's been recreated in the image of our culture. Or a God who really doesn't care much at all about your body or sexuality or the way you dress or the kind of language you use or what you spend your money on or the way you habitually compare yourself to others the way our culture tells us to. These are all caricatures of the God we imagine is quote-unquote holy. God wants to set us free. God is holy. He exceeds our worst and even best sketches of what we wish he is. God is looking for true worshipers. Creatures who are captivated, enchanted by the utterly incomparable wonder of who he actually is. Which, by the way, becomes more and more clear as Jesus enters the story. Jesus is the perfect image of God. So what? Holy, then what? Um, what do we do? How, do? how do we apply it? Let's say we're beginning to grasp. Let's say over the next six weeks. Let's say over the next five days. So I'm going to pray and fast. Never done it before. Scared to death to try. But I'm, I'm going to do it. And if this God, who, um, as you say, transcends my uh, personal version of who I think he is, if this God truly does desire 
uh, to meet with us, to reveal himself, great. Let's do it. Let's go. God, you got five days. Okay. So let's say God, he meets with us. And we begin to experience God in a way um, that, that goes beyond not only our caricatures, but even like uh, the, the words we use to describe God. You know, Scripture says elsewhere that the kingdom of God doesn't exist merely in word, but in a demonstration of his spirit and of power, which is a bit of a paradox. It's a paradox if there ever was one because we are a people of the word. Everything I'm saying right now is words, and yet God isn't contained in words. Human language at some point begins to fail because God is holy. English doesn't quite get the job done because God is holy. Gosh, even Hebrew doesn't quite get us there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Getting some, like, concerned looks. What? Now God is holy. God is so beautiful. It takes, like, all of all of the words in, in, in human history can't actually describe the beauty of our Lord. So let's say we begin to meet with this God and experience this God. And we begin to grasp a more accurate view, a more accurate view, accurate view of God as holy. Then what? What does an understanding of God's holiness look like applied in real life? Just two things, and then we're going to end. Two things. Number one, it looks like worship. Um, Revelation chapter 4. Some of you know exactly where I'm going. The book of Revelation, it's full of these uh, bizarre, wonderful apocalyptic visions of God in heaven. The book of Revelation opens with seven letters to the church. And then chapter four, we get this picture of a throne in heaven. And God himself is seated on this throne. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And we're told around the, the throne there's four living creatures, bizarre creatures that are covered with eyes all around, inside and out. And we're told that as these creatures come before the throne, they declare day and night without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In Revelation 4, verse 9, it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, these are the humans in heaven, all fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The holiness of God compels the creatures to worship holy. Holy, holy. And they cast down their crowns before the Holy One. An encounter with the Holy One. It transforms the curator of truth into a worshiper of the one who is the truth. Jesus who is seated on the throne. When we begin to encounter God for who he really is, when we experience him as the transcendent one, the incomparable one, the holy one, it compels the creature to fall down and simply 
worship. Words begin to fail and song begins to break out. Even words themselves become very poetic. We're no longer speaking in the abstract. We're just simply declaring, you are beautiful, you are beautiful, you are beautiful. There is none like you, there is none like you, there is none like you. And we worship. We worship because we are in the presence of one who transcends all other categories. And we worship. The curator of truth collects and anxiously clings on to true information about the Holy One. That's called being pharisaical. They searched the scriptures daily looking for all of the correct information, failing to recognize that their Savior was right before them. You know, we do this. I'm speaking to us uh, Christians in the room. I do this. I do this. I search the scriptures thinking if I can only get the formula right, if I can only get everything exactly put together, if I can only find all the verses that affirm my version of who I'm convinced God is, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. Because I, because I know I'm right. Uh, we'll be okay. And God knows I need a preacher who can affirm all the things that I think are right. A true worshiper searches the scriptures daily, eagerly anticipating an encounter with the Holy One. The true worshiper is one who's learning to find their deepest joy, belonging, meaning, and security in knowing and being perfectly known by the Holy One, and they freely throw down their crowns. What a picture of, um, of security. Do you guys know um, in 2024, I've heard rumors about um, some kind of an election happening this year. You guys know what I'm talking about? Really? Can we just decide right now collectively to not talk about politics for the entire year? Just put it out there. <clears throat> now that's going to happen. That's going to happen for sure. And what will happen, I'm, I'm predicting it. What, what we'll see happening in our city and in our church and our culture, um, anxiety will just begin to sort of like, just sort of, you'll, you'll feel it come like a wave, like, like the tide beginning to come in. It'll kind of come in waves and it'll increase and it'll increase. Anxiety levels will begin to spike um, depending upon what the news cycle is telling us any given week, right? And you can, I mean, standing up here, like, depending upon the Sunday and what, what's happened in the news cycle the previous week, you can just, you can almost just see it. It's as predictable as the tide itself. Anxiety just sort of like sweeps across the culture, sweeps through the city. It begins to affect people's lives and relationships and families and church communities. Sometimes it can get really ugly because when we're anxious, we start to like cling on to the things that affirm our identity. And if someone has a different perspective or a different idea, uh, it's not okay for them to simply be wrong. Because some people are just wrong. Some people have an incredibly terrible understanding of what the Bible actually says. Or they just take verses and they piece together these weird, hateful, misinformed sort of like ways of understanding God and the church and it just reaps havoc everywhere. So people are wrong, right? But how we actually relate to one another, how well we love each other, that's another story. When anxiety levels begin to rise, that's when we start to cling. That's when we must control. And if someone voices an opinion that undermines mine, then relationships begin to sort of um, 
take on strain. A true worshiper is able to take their crown off. That thing that affirms their identity, their status above all else, they take their crown off and they throw it before the king who is on the throne, the only throne. It's, there's something about understanding that I'm not, my security doesn't hinge upon my ability to defend my personal sort of um, caricature of God. I don't have to defend God because he is on the throne. The Holy One is secure, and thus as a worshiper who is under the authority of the king, I don't have to cling to my crown. I don't have to react to anyone around me. And in fact, the way I overcome evil isn't by retaliating, it's by blessing my enemies. It's by doing good to those who would want to abuse me. It's by serving those who would want to kill me. True worshipers um, were meant to be the most secure creatures, kids in the city. That's true worshipers. They freely throw down their crowns and the true worshiper searches the scriptures daily eagerly anticipating their next encounter with Jesus. Um, secondly, First Peter. First Peter chapter one, verse 14, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as the one, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, aliens living on planet earth, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable so that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's a wonderful paradox. There is no one like our God. He is holy. And in Christ, we have been recreated in the likeness of the Holy One. We are holy. How's that for a paradox? There's no one like God. He is holy. And in Christ, I am holy. In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek word that we translate as holy, hagios is the word. Occasionally, it's also translated as saint. When it's referring to believers, the word holy is translated as saint. We're actually referred to as the holy ones. You are holy in Christ. You feel it? You feel holy? What'd you get up to last night? In Christ, you are a saint. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you got up to last night. Well, it does matter because, heck, I don't want you to wreck your life. Um, it matters what I do with my life. But what doesn't change my status before God is my behavior. Because the king is holy. And he conquered sin and death. And his work on the cross is finished. And in Christ, I am a saint. I'm an adopted child of God. Before the Holy One, I am holy. Now Peter is saying, you should totally act like it. In fact, if you conduct yourselves in this world that we're sort of passing through, because our real home is elsewhere, if you conduct yourselves as if you really are holy, when people look on, you know, like people, you know anyone who like really doesn't like Christians? And perhaps for good reason. Have you ever met someone who says, Man, I'm a Christian, I love God, I believe the Bible, and you're like, dude, you should stop advertising. 
Like you should, or just change the way. Stop being a hypocrite, please. Bigotry is not a good look for the people of God. You know, you guys with me? So what we're being encouraged with is act like children of God. Be holy. Conduct yourselves in a way that when those who look on, who would want to write off the Christians as evildoers, they'll say, dang, actually, actually, there's something um, incomparable about the way the Jesus followers are loving each other. Snap. When our conduct, particularly in the way we love one another, stands out in radical contrast, utterly unlike the way our culture models love and friendship for us, then those who once called Christians evil might look again as all of those antiquated stereotypes slowly fade into the surpassing goodness of who our God really is. God help us. God is holy. God is holy. It totally matters. As, as big and sort of heady and as abstract of a concept like this, or an idea or a sermon like this might be, um, I believe that if we lean into it, if we meditate on like the holiness of God, not the God of my imagination, not the God who I wished he was, not the idealized version of the God who affirms who I'd like to be, but the holy one. If we start leaning into that, we realize that actually the rational response to coming into the presence of holy God is worship. Is worship and living life in a way that uh, declares to the world that there is no one like our God. When we love each other that way, we begin to um, live cruciformed lives lives of sacrificial love, people might begin to rethink their own caricature of God. Maybe it was a caricature that they didn't come up with. Maybe it was the caricature that was shoved in their face because of the church experience they once had. And I say, let's, um, let's give our world a different version of this God who's like none other. Let's ask the Lord to do something that um, displays his beauty. Let's practice loving each other. Not like the world. You ever talk about like loving the world? Who are you even talking about? Let's love the person sitting on the other side of this room or the person who's living next door your apartment. Let's love the difficult coworker. Heck, let's love the difficult person in this room. If we practice graciously relating to each other, being good friends like Jesus in this room, we might change our city. I know some of you are like, that's super naive. Like, how does that even work? I don't care. I don't care. I call me naive. I believe that God is still doing miracles and a revival, the transformation of entire city can start when a small group of friends can begin to seek the face of Jesus and say, Lord, you are the Holy One. We worship you. May our lives be an extension of who you truly are. So that as the world looks on, they might see our good deeds and know who you truly are. Can we stand together, please?
that was a that was a very difficult sermon to preach. Can I be honest with you guys? Some sermons I'm like, I've 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 preached this before. This is just fun. This one was like, man, Lord, what what can I even say? What can I even say? God, you are holy. You are holy. What we really need is is for the Lord Jesus um, to open the eyes of our hearts that we might just get a clear view of who, who he really is, that he would save us from all of our petty caricatures. What will, what will end up happening, um, I must be careful, I'm about to start preaching again. Um, not only will we worship, uh, we will repent. We'll realize, oh, look, I've, I've created all sorts of, of weird caricatures of who God is, who I want him to be, but who he's really not. And so God will invite us to, to repent, to like admit, like, no, no, I, I, I'm, I, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong because scripture is clear. I'm wrong because the Holy Spirit is just convicting me to the core. I'm just wrong. And it's killing me. And the invitation is to let go, is to turn. Okay, I get it. I admit it. Lord, I'm wrong. If you'll have me, if you want me, if it's not too late, I'd love to start following you, Lord Jesus, you, for who you really are. By the way, the the answer to all those, those questions is absolutely he wants you, and it's not too late. His grace never, ever, ever runs out. Lord, give us courage.